As part of our introductory series for the Persian version, I felt there could hardly be a more appropriate voice to hear from regarding our topic than that of the late great American philosopher, historian, and popularizer of world history, Will Durant. The following talk was originally presented as an address before the Iran-America Society in Tehran on April 21st, 1948. The great Will Durant provides a brief but insightful review of Persian cultural history and its influence on the history of human civilization. The following is the text of the speech by Will Durant to the Iran-America Society in Tehran, 1948. For thousands of years, Persians have been creating beauty. 16 centuries before Christ, there went from these regions or near them, from Ariana Vallejo or Old Iran, the migration that poured new blood into northern India. From that new blood came the noble Sanskrit religion, so nearly kin to our own melodious speech. And from that fusion came the Vedas, the Upanishads, and the Buddha. You have been here a kind of watershed civilization, pouring your blood and thought and art and religion eastward and westward into the world. From the Avesta of your ancient faith came not only a hundred influences upon Judaism, Christianity, and Mohammedanism, but one of the highest moral philosophies of all time. The conception of life as struggle between light and darkness, truth and falsehood, good and evil, and the command to men to enlist in the fight for light and help Ahura Mazda win that great battle whose cosmic scope and vast duration gave the individual life a meaning, a value, and a nobility that could not be crushed by death. I need not rehearse for you again the achievements of your acumenid period, then for the first time in known history an empire almost as extensive as the United States received an orderly government, a competence of administration, a web of swift communication, a security of movement by men and goods on majestic roads, equaled before our time only at the zenith of Imperial Rome. The decay of that acumented empire after Marathon and Salamis was a tragedy for civilization, and yet when Alexander came 250 years later, he was so impressed by the culture and courtesy of the Persians, the refinement and grace of their lives, and not least by the beauty and modesty of their women that he abandoned all notion of conquest, proposed a union of Greek and Persian blood and civilization and set an example to his soldiers by marrying Persian wives. In some ways, the Seleucid dynasty realized Alexander's dream of uniting Greek and Persian cultures into one complex civilization. The entry of Rome and its armies into Asia disturbed that fusion. And throughout the Parthian period, Persia had to spend its forces as now on the preservation of its national independence against external pressure or aggression. The Sasanian kings recaptured the glory of acumenid days, 
Once again, there were great rulers, orderly government, artistic creation. Every material from the most delicate textiles to the strongest iron or bronze received the impress of skillful workmanship and subtle design. And now took form many of the decorative motifs that were to influence Byzantine ornament and came to fullest flower in Persian Islam. The Arab conquest disturbed the continuity of your cultural development, but hardly a century passed before the Abbasid revolution marked or allowed the victory of Persia over her conquerors. Persia did to the Arabs what Greece had done to Rome. The Shiite faith rewrote the Mohammedan religion for the Persian people. Grammarians, lexicographers, historians, rose as if from the dead and prepared the way for a literary renaissance. In the fourth century of your era, 10 large catalogs were required merely to list the books in the public library at Ray. In about 550 of the Islamic era, Merv had 10 libraries, one of which contained 12,000 volumes. As early as the third century, you were producing great historians like Al-Tabari and 900 years ago, a Persian scholar, Ibn Mishkavah, wrote what I am now trying to write in Too Brief a Life, a universal history from the point of view of philosophy. About 197, Khwarizmi, a Persian of Khiva, introduced the Hindu numerals into Persia, whence they spread through Islam to the West to become our Arabic numerals. On the cars that I saw in Baghdad, both sets of license numbers were Arabic, though few Iraqis or Europeans there realized it. The same Khwarizmi practically established the science of algebra and gave it its name, Aljab, integration, completion. Having invented algebra, he formulated the oldest known tables of trigonometry. By general consent of even European historians like George Sarton and David Smith, Kharizmi was the greatest of medieval mathematicians. A still greater scientist, a savant of astounding range, was also born near Khiva, about 362 Hajira, Muhammad Biruni, the Leonardo and Leibniz of Persia. He was a mathematician, an astronomer, a geographer, a linguist, an historian, a poet, and a philosopher. And he did original work in all of these fields. The princes of Khwarizm, Tabaristan, and Ghazni competed for the honor of sheltering him in their courts. You know the story of the traveler who told Mahmud that he had seen a land on which the sun never set for months at a time. Mahmud thought that the traveler was making fun of him and ordered his execution. Biruni saved the poor traveler's life by explaining to Mahmud, the midnight sun of the north polar regions in our summer and of the south polar regions in our winter. Biruni's Tank al-Hend, or Inquiry into India, is the greatest work of objective scholarship in all medieval literature. He took for granted the sphericity of the earth, measured with amazing accuracy the inclination 
of the ecliptic, the angle between the equator and the orbit of the sun's apparent motion around the Earth. He expounded gravitation and remarked that all known astronomical phenomena could be explained by supposing that the Earth revolves daily on its axis and annually around the sun. As Biruni was the greatest of medieval scientists, so Rossi, born in 220, was the greatest of medieval physicians. His picture hangs in the School of Medicine at the University of Paris, along with that of Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina, whom Europe calls Avicenna, was more famous than Rossi as a writer on medicine, but deserved his fame as the greatest of medieval philosophers. Born near Mahara in 380, he lived at Khiva, in Gorgon, at Hamadan, and at Esfahan. His Qanun, or Canon of Medicine, translated into Latin, displaced both Rossi and Galen, and was used as a text at the universities of Montpellier and Louvain till our 18th century. The Astor Library in New York has a precious copy, 300 years old. I was allowed to study it, but could hardly carry it from shelf to desk, a thousand double-column pages as large as those of your great Korans. Even vaster, running to 18 volumes, was Ibn Sina's Kitab al-Shifa, a one-man encyclopedia of science, philosophy, and theology, the greatest intellectual achievement in all medieval history. Here and in Aristotle were the sources of Averroes and Maimonides, and even of Christian scholastic philosophy. Roger Bacon considered Avicenna the greatest philosopher since Aristotle, and Thomas Aquinas quoted him repeatedly and lavishly, with respect equal to that which he gives to Plato. I know of no people in history except possibly the Japanese that has had so many poets as Persia. Harun al-Rashid's favorite poet was the scandalous Persian Abu Nawas. The Shahnameh of Ferdowsi is one of the major works of the world's literature, and none of its rivals has ever been written or illuminated or bound so beautifully as the magnificent Shahnamehs that are treasures in the museums and private collections of the world. I've spoken so far only of Persia before the Seljuk ascendancy. I say nothing of the graceful glory of Persepolis, its mighty architecture and massive reliefs, nothing of your rock-cut reliefs from Darius I to Shapur II, nothing of the scant remnants that Turkish, Mongol, and Tartar raids have left of your art in the Abbasid period. Yet, Morad Dasi and other travelers rank the mosques of Neshapur with the Omayyad Mosque of Damascus. To your Seljuk conquerors, you did as you had done to the Arabs. You transformed them from warriors into artists. Seljuk architecture, says Arthur Upham Pope, is one of the classic manifestations of the human spirit. The Persian taste for a graceful ornament united with the heroic mold of the Seljuk to produce at Merv 
and Hamadon and Qazvin and Esfahan and architectural flowering as remarkable and contemporary with the Gothic flowering in France and Germany. In Persia and other lands of the Near and Middle East, the elements of Gothic architecture in pillar and pointed arch, vault and dome took definite form and in the Seljuk masterpieces achieved perfection and unity. And in that Seljuk age, ceramics became a major art. Architecture became at times an appendage to pottery. And the tiles of Ray and Kashan, the luster decoration, faience, and glass of these and other Persian cities, Tabriz, Sultanabad, Damghan, Neshapur, brightened the face and the walls of a hundred mosques and a thousand palaces. And on the walls and under men's feet were Persian rugs such as even Persia cannot make today. All the paintings of the Italian Renaissance, said the American painter John Singer Sargent, are not worth one Persian rug. Your most famous poet belongs to the Seljuk age, Omar Khayyam. So famous in the West, of course, was above all a scientist whose quatrains were the casual amusement of one whose greatest pleasures were mathematics and astronomy. Do not take too seriously his pains to wine. His proposed reformation of the Persian calendar was more accurate than Europe's present Gregorian calendar. This errs by a day every 3,330 years, Omar's by a day every 3,770 years. I mourn that I shall not see his tomb in Neshapur, nor the artistic wealth of Mashhad, nor shall I see the little town near Tiflis where Nizami sang of Leila and Majnun, nor the shop of Neshapur where Attar sold perfumes. But I trust that I shall see Shiraz and thank it for Sadi and for Hafez. The Mongols came upon all this glory and laid it waste, ruined the canals that watered your soil and the libraries that nourished your souls. And you repaid them by turning them too into lovers and creators of art. Tabriz grew rich on the trade that flowed between the Mongol lands of the East and the cities on the Black Sea, probably along with this route, the Mongols brought from China the art of printing Tabriz used the art to print paper money in A.D. 1294. I need not tell you the great mosques that rose and fell at Tabriz of the famous observatory at Maraga near Tabriz, where Hulagu in 1259 brought together the leading astronomers from the Chinese to the Islamic worlds under the leadership of the Persian Nasser ad-Din Tusi, of the brief magnificence of Olaju Sultanieh, and the university city built just south of Tabriz by the great Prime Minister Rashid al-Din at the opening of the 14th century of the Christian era. There is no greater service, wrote the vizier, rivaled in Islam only by Nizam al-Mulk, than to encourage science and scholarship, to make it possible for scholars to work in peace of mind without the harassment of poverty. In your great archaeological museum, I saw some of the few surviving works of Rashid al-Din as historian and mourned that no book of this century would ever be written or illuminated so beautifully. One could almost forgive the ravages of the Mongols for the art of illumination that prospered under their patronage. In those centuries, patient and subtle fingers made the loveliest books that the world has ever known. 
These men knew printing, but would not use it for their books. And the best printed books of today are to an illuminated masterpiece of Mong the Mongol age in Persia and in Transoxiana, what a Ford car is to the Parthenon. Imagination, said a Persian poet, cannot grasp the joy that reason draws from a fine drawn line. I do not know which in these great manuscripts is fairer, the illumination or the text. Only the Chinese and Japanese can rival the Arabic and Persian script as works of calligraphic art. To my perhaps untutored taste, the inscriptions that label the objects in your archaeological museum are among the loveliest things in these bright halls. But I must not continue this reckless leaping from peak to peak of your cultural history. Forgive me for talking so long, but I have learned to love your poetry, your art, your manners, your spirit. I wish the years might be given to me to study your achievements more fully and to do them justice in my history. But I shall do what no Christian author has ever done, give to Islamic culture a half of all the space in the, my volume on medieval civilization. My Christian readers will marvel at the length of my survey of medieval Islam and Muslim scholars will mourn its criminal brevity. Seldom has any society in an equal period produced so many illustrious figures in government, education, literature, philology, geography, history, mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, medicine, theology, and philosophy, as in the four centuries of Islam between Harun al-Rashid and Averroes. In a sense, this brilliant flowering was a recovery of the Near East from Greek domination. It reached back not only to the Persia of Darius, but to the Judea of Solomon, the Assyria of Ashurbanipal, the Babylonia of Hammurabi, the Akkad of Sargon, and the Sumeria of unknown kings. So the continuity of history reasserts itself despite earthquakes, epidemics, eruptive migrations, and catastrophic wars, the essential processes of civilization are not lost. Some younger culture takes them up, snatches them from the conflagration, and carries them through imitation to creation until fresh youth and spirit can join the fray. As men are members of one another and citizens are parts of a united state. So civilizations are units in a larger whole that we may only call history. They are stages in the life of man. Therefore the scholar, though he belongs to his country through affectionate prejudice, feels himself also a citizen of that boundless realm, the international of the mind. He hardly deserves his name if he carries political, or ethnic distinctions into his studies, and he accords his grateful homage to any people that has borne the torch and enriched his heritage. So I do to you, Wilderant. <laughs>